0: Good morning, everybody. Uh, Before we begin the message, I'd ask you to take a look at your bulletin. If you can see mine there, there's an entry here for extended notes. The amount of material that we have to cover to completely address this issue is far more than uh, what, what we could do in the mere, yeah, whatever amount of time it is that I have today. So I'd encourage you to take advantage of that free download. Uh, John MacArthur says, uh, in many ways, better than I can, far more than I can. And so take take a look at that. Uh, In addition, I want to tell you how much I'm looking forward to our congregational meeting uh, Monday night a week, uh, when we'll propose uh, Matt as an elder, and uh, continuance of two other elders for another term and uh, the election of two deacons, or the affirmation of two deacons, uh, Ed Gutowski and Ann Pierce. Thank you. Um, that's next Sunday. I'm sorry. That's not next Monday. Right? That's next Sunday after church. Uh, tomorrow night is the, the meeting. Uh, try, try not to miss it. I, I just want to add to Scott's... Uh, comment that uh, a lot of people have put a lot of work into it. We have a uh, a very a very different and a very energizing financial report this year. So I'd encourage you all to try to make it out uh, just to hear from what God is doing with the funds that you have donated to Grace Chapel. Uh, let's open with a word of prayer. Father God, thank you for the opportunity that we have to be part of your church, local expression of your body here in Havertown. I thank you for the gift of the clarity of your word, the direction that it gives us and the protection it is to us as, as we walk in it. I pray, Father, that as we open it today, you would guide me as I speak, that what I say would be only what you want to have said. And I pray that all of those who have chosen to be here and listen to this today, um, elders and congregation alike, and me, that our hearts would be open to what you want to say to us through these scriptures. We know that Grace Chapel is your church, that we are your flock, and that you love us past what we could ever imagine. We look forward to seeing you do great things in our midst, we look forward to seeing you bring us through the, the current times and struggles that we face. And we pray that those times and struggles will have refined us and not divided us. That we can be the testimony that you have called us to have here in Havertown. And that we can live the lives and manifest your love, demonstrate your love, as you have called us to here in Havertown. Now, Father, please give me peace as I speak and give me clarity of mind and help all of us to hear and understand what you have to say, nothing more, nothing less. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Grace Chapel has historically placed significant emphasis on the Bible, God's word, as the basis for our church life and practice. The Congregational survey that we took about 18 months ago, I think it was, showed that sound Bible teaching remains a recognized priority at Grace Chapel to this day. In a few months, the elders will propose some constitutional changes for the congregation's consideration These are intended to restore Grace Chapel to its historical roots as a church led by a plurality of elders. As elders, we are convinced of the biblical accuracy of these changes. This morning, we will share with you an overview of the passages we considered as we arrived at this conclusion. Towards this end, we're going to answer three questions. How is the term elder used in the Bible? How were elders organized in the early church? And what does the role of elder entail within the local church? We'll start with how is the term elder used in the Bible. In the Old Testament, around 1500 BC, God used Moses to lead the people of Israel out of Egypt. At that time, we see that even in slavery, the people were organized in such a way that they looked for guidance to a group they called the elders. God mentions them to Moses in Exodus chapter 3, verse 16, when he commissions Moses to return to Egypt and lead the people. By the time we get to chapter 18 in Exodus, which is after the law has been given, Moses is being worn out by judging the people, applying God's law to their day-to-day situation. Remember at this point that until, let's say relatively recently, the people of Israel, although they had elders who probably settled disputes between people, They had not been exposed to the law of God. They were not even sure who God was. He was a a distant memory. Uh, If you doubt the accuracy of that statement, look at their reaction to Moses' claim that he came from God to lead them. And so they went from having no real government as people who were ruled over by taskmasters to being the precious people claimed by a God who they watched destroy the Egyptian army. They did not know God well. He gave them a list of commandments that they were to live by. It was quite a change. The law of Moses established the entire culture of the nation of Israel. They were not at this point familiar with that but they were eager to obey because the consequences of disobedience were very clear and very dramatic. The Bible uses an expression, fear God, and we recognize that that has, is, is, is typically used as an, uh, in, the, in, the, in the aspect of respect God. But I wonder, in the case of the people of Israel, newly acquainted with the, with the law of Moses, newly acquainted with the Lord God. If there wasn't an aspect of just plain fear, as in I'm scared of the dark daddy involved. And so they came to Moses daily to have their, uh, their divisions and, their, dis- and their, their, their differences reconciled, and this was wearing Moses out. In verses 17 to 27 of Exodus 18, Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, proposes a solution. Moses' father-in-law replied, what you are doing is not good. You and these people who come to you will only wear yourselves out. The work is too heavy for you. You cannot handle it alone. Listen now to me and I will give you some advice and may God be with you. You must be the people's representative before God and bring their disputes to him. Teach them his decrees and instructions. Show them the way that they are to live and how they are to behave. But select capable men from among all the people, men who fear God, trustworthy men who hate dishonest gain, and appoint them as officials over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. Have them serve as judges for the people at all times but have them bring every difficult case to you, the simple cases they can handle themselves. That will make your load lighter because they will share it with you. If you do this and God so commands, you will be able to stand the strain and all these people will go home satisfied. Moses listened to his father-in-law and did everything he said. He chose capable men from all Israel and made them leaders of the people. Officials over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. They served as judges for the people at all times. The difficult cases they brought to Moses. But the simple cases they addressed themselves. The model Jethro suggested was to teach the people and delegate authority to individuals who feared God and hated dishonest gain. Although this passage doesn't specifically say they were called elders, elders are mentioned as leaders in Israel up until the people ask for a king to be appointed over them. The Book of Ezra, which records events in the nation Israel after the kingship had been abolished, also refers to elders as the leaders of the people. Now the Hebrew term used for elder in the Old Testament simply refers to an old man It's the context in which the word is used which gives it the sense of leadership or authority. The same is true in the New Testament. The Greek word presbyteros means simply old man, but the context in which it is used often shows it refers to those recognized as spiritual authorities who were not priests. This usage was common in Jesus' time. The gospels refer to the rulers and the elders of the people or the traditions of the elders. Within the church, the word presbyteros is often used in Acts and the epistles in the same way to designate those who held spiritual authority. Since the early church had its roots in Judaism, it is natural that they would use elder as a term to describe their leaders. Elder was a common leadership title that was not associated with either the priesthood or the monarchy. It is significant that the leadership model of the church does not involve either of these roles, the priesthood or the monarchy. Since every believer has direct access to the Father, we do not need our leaders as mediators. We are a nation of priests. Our leaders have no special or privileged access which is greater than our own. Since the nature of leadership in God's kingdom is modeled after Christ, who came to serve and as a sacrifice, our earthly leaders are also not called kings. There's some additional Greek terms used for leadership within the church. Two of them are episkopos. Yeah, episkopos and Puyman, Pastor Shepard, Episcopos' is bishop or overseer. Episcopos, in its secular usage, indicated someone appointed by the emperor to serve over a newly founded or newly conquered city. He reigned in the place of the emperor, and he established a new social order. The term is applied to Christ in 1 Peter, chapter 2, verse 25, where Jesus is called the overseer of our souls. Poimen, which is translated shepherd or pastor, in secular usage, refers to shepherds and shepherding. It is also used of Jesus in 1 Peter, chapter 2, verse 25, where Jesus is called the shepherd of our souls. So we have three Greek words, presbyter presbyteros, episkopos, and poimen, that are used in the New Testament to refer to the same group of people and the same office. I say this because we have several texts of Scripture where the terms are used interchangeably. In Titus chapter 1, verses 5 and 7, Paul uses the term elder in verse 5 and then the term for bishop or overseer in verse 7, both terms referring to the same person. In Titus chapter one, verses six through nine, the qualifications for an elder are given, while in 1 Timothy chapter three, lists those for a bishop or overseer. The lists are essentially identical and are broadly accepted as referring to the same office. In 1 Peter chapter five, verses one and two, Paul uses all three terms referring to the same group of people and their responsibilities. He says, to the elders among you... I'm sorry, it was Peter that says this. To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder and a witness of Christ's sufferings, who also will share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be, not pursuing dishonest gain, but anxious to serve. Acts chapter 20, verses 17 and 28, Paul calls for the elders of the church in Ephesus to meet him by the, on the beach as he is headed off to Rome. From Miletus, Paul sent, for, sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. He told them, keep watch over your. in verse 28, he told them, Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. In the New Testament, we have three primary words used somewhat interchangeably to refer to the office of elder. The word elder itself emphasizes the character of the leader and oneness with those led. If you note, elders were chosen chosen from among the congregations where they served. The word bishop emphasizes the role of directing and the accountability for one's stewardship to a higher authority. Pastor emphasizes the heart of the leader, seeking the benefit of those who lead and caring deeply for them. obviously that was a cause and not a solution. <laughs> Next question we'll address is how were the elders organized in the early church? The word elder is always in the plural in the New Testament except where the writer is referring to referring is using it to refer to himself. In Acts 15:23 when they had appointed elders for them in every church, Titus 1.5, for this reason I left you behind on Crete, that you might appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Philippians 1, verse 1, Paul, bondservant of Christ Jesus to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, including the overseers and the deacons. James 5.4, call the elders of the church. The biblical norm for leadership is typically a group rather than a single individual. There are exceptions to this. We saw one last week in Ephesians 4.11 where the Lord gives gifted men to the church. These men are usually given, along with the others that are are listed in that passage, uh, to be used in church planting situations where the gospel has not yet been preached or in other pioneer work. Another exception would be in exceptional circumstances, like Moses leading the people of Israel out of Egypt, or Nehemiah rebuilding the wall of Jerusalem. The last example would be the kings of Israel, when the people demanded a king like all the other nations and God answered their request. Leadership invested in a group has greater resilience. A plurality of leadership provides mutual accountability and greater transparency. It helps leaders avoid falling into sin. As an illustration, when Jesus sent the disciples out, he sent them two by two. If you read through Paul's accounts of his travels, you'll see that he always had a companion. He never went off by himself. A church church also takes on the personality of its leader or leaders. If there is just one leader, the church will inevitably take on that individual's personality, including his quirks and faults and his strengths as well. But if more than one person leads the church, there is a greater chance that the church will be balanced. Plurality of leadership is also an advantage to those who are led. Proverbs eleven fourteen, 14, where there is no counsel, the people fall, but in a multitude of counselors, there is safety. In Proverbs 15, without counsel, plans go awry, but in the multitude of counselors, they are established. So it seems to us clear that the New Testament proposes a model of church leadership in normal situations where a plurality of elders shares leadership of, the, uh, of the, the local church or the congregation. Now this brings us to our third question. What does the role of an elder entail in the local church? In the leadership model of the early local church, there was no higher office than that of elder. 1 Timothy 3, verses 1 and verse 5. In verse 1, Paul tells us that the desire to do the work of an elder is a good thing. Note that the desire is focused on the work, not on holding the position. Here is a trustworthy saying, whoever aspires to be an overseer desires a noble task. Paul later defines the task as managing the church of God and compares it to management of a family. In verse 5 he says if anyone does not know how to manage his own family how can he take care of God's church I believe at this point we can ask ourselves what a mel- we can ask ourselves what a well managed family looks like to get a picture of some of the responsibilities of an elder Members of a well managed family would feel relationally secure they would be confident in their acceptance into the family. Members of a well-managed family would see their family as a place of protection and safety. When life outside was difficult, scary, or threatening, they knew they could come home and find peace and protection. Members of a well-managed family would draw strength from their family. As they faced life's trials and found support within the family, they would grow and become better able to face future challenges. Members of a well-managed family would know that, if, that the family as a whole sought their well-being. They would have a bond of trust built across years of experience in sharing life. These are just a few of my random thoughts. I encourage you to think more about the parallels between the church and the family. Compare those thoughts with scripture and see what the Lord says to you. In 1 Timothy 5, verse 17, speaks of an elder's responsibility to rule. The same Greek word is used in four other times to describe the role of an elder. It literally means to stand first and refers to an elder's responsibility to provide general oversight of the church. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse seven, remember your leaders who spoke the word to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. As elders rule, they are to lead by biblical precept and personal example. In short, they preach, and then they practice what they preach. Hebrews 13, 17, later in the same chapter, have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account. Do this so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for it would be no benefit to you, i.e., if their work is a burden. Elders must always remember that they will give an account of their stewardship of Christ's church to the Father himself. I can tell you that there's nothing that weighs more heavily on me. As a matter of fact, my entire sense of inner turmoil this morning is a result of my fear that anything I would say would cause further division within the church. In the list of qualifications for elder in First Timothy 3, verses 2 through 7, all are character-based except for the requirement that an elder be apt to teach. Now, this doesn't mean that if anyone who serves as an elder uh, has to be able to get up and preach or teach publicly like, you know, Dave Mingle does, or I do, or uh, John Spatafora does. I'm relatively sure that if uh, Scott McClellan was given that opportunity, he would rather die. And yet, he is an excellent, excellent elder. And he is a man who will teach you one-on-one, as in, if there is something that is not right, and he sees that God's truth can correct it in your life, he will explain that to you, he will present that truth to you. That is what Paul means when he says, apt to teach. It's not necessarily in front of a large group. It's not necessarily in a public place, although some of us have that responsibility. Every parent, hopefully, has taught. They've definitely taught by example. Hopefully, they've taught in precept as well. Elders have to be apt to teach. In Titus 1, verses 7 through 9, elders are responsible to recognize false teaching and refute it. This is not as daunting as it seems. The emphasis is on the knowledge of God's word that sets a standard, and other teaching must measure up. There is a proverb, he who knows 10 is not deceived by 9. I'm sure many of you have heard a radio teacher or maybe even me and said, well, that just doesn't seem right. As I would say, it doesn't pass the smell test. You know, just something that just sniffs wrong here. That's the result. When that is the case, if it's me, come and see me for sure. If it's something else where you're unable to talk to the individual, go and research the issue in God's word or discuss with those you regard as spiritual leaders whose maturity you respect. Research the issue and be sure that your understanding of what was said is correct. Regardless, elders are responsible to have that that sense sufficient depth spiritually and knowledge of God's word that they can instinctively recognize false teaching. The word translated exhort in Titus Titus 1, verse 9 is used several other places in the New Testament. It means to draw near. In other passages, it is variously translated as persuade, encourage, plead, comfort, and patiently repeat. You know, I don't know how this happened, but this left out two paragraphs when I printed it. Okay, well, we'll wing it. Uh, this gives us an idea of the scope of the concept of exhortation. Exhortation is, also, is often focused on a particular practice or choices. Elders and brothers and sisters in Christ care about the decisions and actions of those in the church. Not only do elders guard purity of doctrine, as we discussed earlier with, with regard to false teachers, but they also regard, they also guard purity of practice. Purity has a really, has gotten really a lot of bad press. And I don't want you to leave with the idea that when I say purity of practice and purity of doctrine, that In essence, we're talking about purity in the sense of a gold bar, which is uh, an undeniable standard. It's either 24 karat gold or it isn't. And a judgment of anything that fails to meet the standard of 24 karat gold is that it doesn't work. What we're talking about here when we say purity of doctrine is the core teachings of Christianity. We're not talking about a list of doctrine 37 points long, that if you fail to believe all 37, uh, therefore, you're going to be judged. But we are talking about the doctrines necessary for a church to grow for Christians to grow, the doctrines that are foundational to Christianity, to life in Christ, across the board, those doctrines we must defend and maintain purity in that area. We must also recognize that there are many other doctrines where good and godly people disagree, and that they have their reasons, and we have our reasons, and they will respect us, and we will respect them. So please don't view purity of doctrine as some kind of, like, weighty, terrible, judgmental thing. The same thing goes with purity of practice. When I was in Haiti, I had a work team come down. And uh, one, of the, one of the members on the work team was an over-the-road trucker who had just trusted Christ 18 months earlier. And, uh, as a a part of his walk with Christ, uh, he heard at his church about this trip to Haiti, and it absolutely terrified him. The thought of going overseas, which he had never done, was terrifying. The thought of going to Haiti was terrifying. The thought of going to rural Haiti was even more terrifying, and yet he had an increasing conviction that God wanted him to go, and so he went. But there was a problem. It smoked for 20 years. And Haitians have a misguided belief that if you smoke, you cannot be saved. And so this dear brother, who took this enormous step of faith as a relatively new believer, was out behind the building, and he he tried to hide the fact that he was smoking because he recognized it was seen negatively in the culture because he asked me about it. And so he was over behind the corner of the building having a cigarette, and an older woman from the church who was bringing us breakfast uh, happened to walk around the building, and she came over and promptly informed me that I had an unsaved person on our work team and how could I bring an unsafe person to build her church? So it was a great teaching opportunity where I taught what she did not expect me to teach. The point is, smoking, not smoking, that's a gray area. Is it better if you don't smoke? Yeah, it's better if you don't smoke. Even the government agrees with us on that. When we talk about purity of practice, we're talking about avoiding the identified sins, the identified deeds of the flesh, that the scripture lists should not be a part of the Christian life. Now, Why are we responsible for this? Because if we preach well and we practice poorly, we have nothing to say. If we preach well and we practice poorly, we have nothing to say. This responsibility is not just the responsibility of the elders, but it is also the responsibility of each and every one of us. I had a dear brother come up to me one time, and this was in the US, so this doesn't count as a Haiti story, sorry, Harris. Uh, And he said to me, will you give me the freedom to speak truth into your life? I'd never heard that question in my life. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, will you give me the freedom to speak truth into your life? If I see an area of your life where I believe God's truth needs to be applied, do you give me the freedom to say that? I said, I can't take away from you the responsibility to do that. We are each and every one of us responsible to address a brother or sister who we see is not living out the Christian life as it should be lived not according to cultural norms, but according to biblical norms. A final responsibility of the, uh, of the elders is to shepherd the flock of God. In First Peter chapter 5, verse 2, we see that it's always mentioned in Scripture as God's flock. It's never mentioned as our flock, His flock. It's always God's flock. Elders are merely caretakers who will give an account. We saw that in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17. In Acts chapter 15, verse 22, we see that elders are responsible to determine church policy. It's a part of their leadership role. And in 1 Timothy 4, 14, we see that elders are responsible to ordain others to ministry. All elders have equal office, equal honor, equal privileges, equal responsibilities, equal authority. A position of leadership doesn't necessarily equate to spiritual superiority. If we look at, uh, at Peter and John in the New Testament, we know that Peter was the, 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 the guy who always spoke up. Peter was never at a lack for words. And John was the disciple that Jesus loved. My gut says, and this is just my gut, Okay, my God, this is like the sniff test thing. My gut says that John was probably a more spiritual person in terms of his orientation than Peter was. And yet Peter is consistently the spokesman for the apostles, both during Jesus' time on earth and after his resurrection. Why was Peter the spokesman? Why was Peter up front preaching at Pentecost? There's no recorded message from John, because that was the way that Peter was gifted. Although all elders are created equal, are equally empowered, have equal authority, have equal privileges, are equally responsible before the Lord, that does not mean that some of them will not have a, a role that will put them before the people more often than other elders. Some elders may serve more behind the scenes, others will be up front. That's just how it is. In conclusion, we've looked at the relationship between elders and the local church. I want to share with you an insight from a podcast a friend sent me. If an outsider who had no history with the church or anything like that came into the church and looked at the relationships and the organization In most Western churches, they would conclude that we are following a top-down business-type model. A careful look at the New Testament reveals a different picture. The church, in terms of relationship and organization, is more like a family than a business. Please think about this. It has implications for us as elders, and implications for all of you in the congregation as a result. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father God, thank you for this opportunity to share your truth. Thank you for your Holy Spirit who helps us to understand it and then to put it into practice. I pray for the elders among us who serve in this body, that you would give us clarity, that you would give us hearts of compassion, that we would demonstrate leader, leadership through precept and practice, that we would be true to your word, that we would strengthen the flock entrusted to us, that we would in all things model you and your leadership model, that we would always speak the truth in love. I pray too for the congregation. I ask that you would help them to endure with us during the difficulties and the challenges and the struggles and the changes of this difficult time that you would help them to trust us, recognizing that you guide us and that we seek to follow you. Help them to be open with us and to freely express their fears, their reservations, their thoughts, their burdens, their goals, and their desires. I pray that all of us together would honor you here in Havertown that Grace Chapel would become an example of what you can do through a group of people who are thoroughly, wholeheartedly, 110% committed to walking with you and living out the truths of your word. May we become known as the people who turned their world upside down. We We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.